Today, we are going all the way back in the crazy time machine to 1981, where an amazing assembly of comic book talents gather together on stage at the San Diego Comic Con. Yes, San Diego Comic Con, a transcript from 1981 from not just one, but two amazing panels where such massive, incredible superstar influencers on the comic book circuit, such as Jim Shooter, Frank Miller, Denny O'Neill, Dick Giordano, the illustrious Roy Thomas and Louise Jones, soon to be Louise Simonson, they all weigh in on what's it like to make comics, what's it like to stay relevant in comics, the different processes that they use when editing comics. What is it like editing a comic in 2022 as opposed to what they share in regards to editing comics in 1981? You are going to be shocked at so many of the differences and the, and the approaches that currently are not being applied in the comic book world. We discuss all of that and so much more on today's all-new Observations. Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. Welcome to another edition of Observations. Observations is the show, is the place that we discuss the cultural impact that comic books has had on the entire culture that we now presently exist in. We're talking movies, we're talking television, we're talking streaming, we're talking animation, video games, action figures. We should probably do those more often, but we, 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 we include them when we can. I love comic books. I absolutely love the comic book art form I have for my entire life. It's going on 48 years since I encountered my first comic books and they blew my mind age six, age seven. And there was no looking back. And this is like in the middle of the 1970s, 1974, uh, 1973. These are, these are the ages. This is the, 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 the dates that I was circling my first passion with comic books and I never looked back. I've been obsessed ever since and never did I believe that they would grow into what they've grown in now. And here's the reason that I am so excited about comic books to this day. In my 50s, I am excited because comic books are the foundation of almost, if not everything, a large majority of what you are interacting with on a regular basis. You can go on your menu, as you know, whether it's HBO Max, and boom, you're going to get your Superman options, your Batman options, your Wonder Woman, your Justice League, your Super Friends, your Harley Quinn. Entire, you know, folders worth of menus with viewing options that take hundreds of hours. I mean, the Titans, Doom Patrol, it's all there. It's all represented. You go to Disney Plus, and you've got all of the MCU. You've got your Avengers, your Ant-Man, your Doctor Strange, your Thors, your Captain Americas, you know, over on Amazon, over on the other uh, platforms where they've, you know, Sony cut their deals for the Spider-Man catalog. You know, you can find that stuff over there. In the meantime, you can look at the Invincible cartoon or the Boys show or somewhere in the internet. Maybe it's a dedicated AMC channel now. It's The Walking Dead and all 3,000 episodes because that show is never going away. And they're <laughs> just going to keep making more Walking Dead. What is the shared foundation between all of these things? It's comic books. And I have been so fortunate to work in comic books for 37 years. Yes, 37 amazing years where I have produced comic books. I have written comic books. I have drawn, inked, you you name it. I've done it. I've just, the, I actually did go to the printer once and, and, 
push a button so I can technically say I even was part of the printing process. I grew up, one of my first jobs, my dad put me to work at our church printing press, whether it was the church bulletins, whether it was the church flyers, you know, the, 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 uh, the, I mean, sometimes hymnal, you know, uh, music stuff. I mean, I, I was, I was in charge from Thursday to Saturday, uh, when I was probably 13, 14, 15 of working our two printing presses. And I learned how, how to balance water and ink. And, and if something was too dark and, and get the balance back and, 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 you know, change the levels of the primary colors. And so I was able to take that, even that knowledge into my comic book, uh, producing and publishing, uh, existence and, and, and early on interact on that level. Like, Hey, hey, hey I saw that this cover printed a little too dark. I think they need to adjust their levels. They're, 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 they're looking away. I mean, a lot of the times, especially in the early ages of the eighties, when I first started getting my comic books printed, when I first started contributing and being a professional, you know, that's, that, that was when, you know, a printer was running different printers were running the machines. And again, if you go away and have a ham sandwich and you think that it's running, you know, okay, then then you end up with New Mutants 87. One is red and one is orange. And it's like they split the difference. That's because a guy looked away. He got distracted. He stopped affecting the levels. I've never asked, was this supposed to be orange or red? But there is equal parts orange and there's equal parts red. And yes, that's something I've never shared before today. The whole um, kind of printing background and how I actually use that to, to, to implement it into my own work. I mean, just last week when a book went off to press at image comics, I said, will you please put a note to the printer to watch? I think these cover, these, these colors are very rich and there's a lot of, um, darker hues. Please, you know, ask them to not print it too dark. Cause oh, when something prints too dark, it's just awful. You'd rather have anything print too light than print too dark. And, and, and again, when it, when it comes down to the adaptation of these comic book mater- this comic book material in the world of streaming and, and, and big budget movies, I'm telling you right now, you know, we judge them by the basis of their special effects. And certain movies, you know, have janky effects, even in 2022, as opposed to other movies having, you know, more high-end effects. And, you know, Star Wars didn't start out a comic book, but certainly Star Wars Foundations is is rich in Jack Kirby and the Fourth World Saga and Dark Side and, you know, New Genesis, Apocalypse. There's a lot of that. If you don't know about it, maybe we'll discuss it in a soon in, in a in a soon to be recorded episode of Raw Observations. But that's what we're here for. I love comic books. I believe com- comic books is the foundation for so very much that we are um, consuming on a regular basis. And it's fun because this podcast, in case you um, are early or, or new to this show, I started this in the pandemic of 2020 out of abject loneliness. And my son uh, said, Dad, I can get you a, a, a microphone, a Blue Yeti. I'll go order it from, from Best Buy. I'll, I'll do the pickup option, which is all that existed at the time because you couldn't go into the the the, the, uh, the, the Best Buy in spring of 2020 because we were still so you know unsure of everything regarding the pandemic. And I started recording these as almost like just a dear diary and, and talk, walking you through my experience from the very first comic books that I peeled off the rusty spinner racks in all the different locations and all the different haunts that had comic books, which, uh, to be honest, are more than there are now. I mean, you don't walk into a grocery store and encounter comic books anymore. You don't walk into the CVS. But when I was a kid, the equivalent of those had them. And, 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 and all of the, the corner markets. I mean, 7-Eleven doesn't have uh, comic books anymore. I mean, I went into my 7-Eleven recently and there was Deadpool Funko Pops. 
but there's no Deadpool comic books. <laughs> but there's all the latest Deadpool Funko Pops at, at like point of purchase at the 7-Eleven. And I'm like, wow. And they had other Funko Pops too, but I was really, I mean, obviously when you walk in and, and, you, and you see this character that you participate in, you created, it exists because of you and it's looking back at you at 7-Eleven, but there is no comic book to interact with on that level. So uh, the, the, the bottom line is, you know, we all kind of shared this comic book shared foundation. You may have come in in the 80s. I may have come in in the, in the 70s. You may have come in in the 90s, the 2000s, whatever. And we're all going to have a different encounter, but it is, is right now being mined for so much, again, of the material that we have. And I started this podcast maybe as a form of therapy. And I just wanted to share all that I knew, all that I learned, all the interviews that I had consumed. And we're going to actually share some of those today because I am so glad that I kept all of my different uh, fan magazines. I, they weren't fan magazines. They were professionally published, but they were, you know, uh, I, I, I guess I'm erroneously calling them fan magazines, but they really were on the beat with comic book writers, artists, and they only were sold in comic book specialty stores. This is the kind of stuff that wasn't at the drugstore, that wasn't at the... Uh, the, the, the grocery store or the 7-Eleven. These comic book specialty magazines, which I started buying in 1980, the very first one I ever saw, uh, I, I really, you know, it just consumed all of these interviews when creators would talk about their process. I just wanted to get inside and learn. Well, luckily I saved all those. And now when I read directly from them, as I'm going to today, you're going to see like a snapshot in time of how the comic book industry was. And some of these guys are really big movers and shakers. Some of them are going to be familiar to you. And you're going to have heard their names before, but not saying what they've ever said before. I mean, we're sharing some really fresh stuff, trying to keep this show as fresh as possible with new, um, you know, information and 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 ideas and interviews and 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 dialogue between important creators that you know may have come out as this as this I'm going to share with you today did 40 years ago. So before we get to that, I want to talk about a little movie called Avatar. It was re-released this past weekend in two theaters, and there was a lot of. Uh, there's been a lot of, retro, I would I, I would say retrofitting of history or retconning, which is retroactively adjusting the continuity even in our own world. It, retcon came out of fiction, but now I see it happening a lot in our realities. And the fact of the matter is, I do not know why everyone bets against James Cameron but they consistently do. He is someone people more often talk of in, in a challenging way than a celebratory way. And it's interesting to me. Um, I obviously relate to people who are more combative in their existence because of my own combative comic book existence. And I'm fine. I, I, I've, I'm like a Kobe Bryant. I'm fine to, to make the fight. I'm fine to make the case for myself as I believe James Cameron is also fine in making the case for himself. He is the greatest, grandest version of this. We, you know, neither Kobe nor myself can touch the levels of success that he has had in terms of moving people with his art and with his abilities. And pretty much, if you're listening to this now, you have likely, at some point in time, enacted with a James Cameron production. Whether it was the first Terminator, maybe some of you go all the way back to his Piranha movie, but then you go Terminator, you go, you know, Aliens, his follow-up to Ridley Scott's amazing Alien. I mean, Ridley Scott had made this 
incredible sci-fi horror film. And then when this the sequel comes out seven years later, James Cameron makes it this balls to the wall sci-fi action film, still with the horror, you know, um, aspects woven in, but it is now a big, giant sci-fi action film. I mean, space marines are going to take down, you know, this hive of aliens. I mean, they don't know what they're getting into, but there's there's a reason they've been dispatched because they know that this is a pretty serious threat. And then before you know it, Michael Bien and uh, Bill Paxton they are al- alongside Sigourney Weaver with giant, awesome sci-fi guns and weaponry and at the end with the exoskeleton. I mean, James Cameron took one man's visionary work and built on it and made his own visionary work on top that stood completely separately alone. Then we get into, you know, Terminator 2. And it's absolute, you know, I, I, I skipped over the abyss. So we do the abyss after Aliens. Then we get into Terminator 2. Then it's True Lies. And then we get to Titanic. And by that time, I I do not know why people are now betting against him, but they are. And I've told you how the industry was absolutely freaking out. I've talked to you about being at the the, the home of the president of 20th Century Fox at the time and him freaking out at the the aspect of Titanic flopping and how much it was going to cost the studio. In fact, as you know, it went on to make billions of dollars and become one of the biggest hits of all time for almost 20 years. It was unseated by Mr. James Cameron himself. He unseated his own top movie with Avatar. Avatar was a great unknown. It didn't have a big giant movie star attached to it. It didn't have Brad Pitt. It didn't have Tom Cruise. This is the Christmas of 2009. It had blue people. Now, I myself went back in time to look at the tweets and the things that people were saying. If you were to Google Rob Liefeld and Avatar, you will see that I am praising this movie uh, nonstop from the minute that I encounter it. And I, I I went through, I took screenshots of certain tweets so you can see that, you know, I was always excited about this. In fact, there are people who are like, Rob Liefeld, you are way too excited about the success of Avatar. It was just so unbelievable to me. But when I went and saw it, the day that it came out, before, the, the, I, I, I don't remember a Thursday night pre-screening in 2009. I know that Marat Michaels, who... Uh, you may have known from Brigade or currently Do You Poo or any of the other work that he's done, but in between, he was living here in Orange County at the time. We went to the uh, inaugural showing of it at the uh, Cinema City in Anaheim in a early morning showing, knowing that it was going to be a three-hour endeavor, and our minds were, blown, were just absolutely blown. The Navi, the technology, basically, again, Space Marines again with Korich and his 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 his, his guys— and then Jake Sully and, and uh, you know, jumping into the Na'vi body, eventually leading the Na'vi in this gigantic uh, third act. But, you know, I, was, I went along with the character. I, I took the entire journey from the minute the movie opened and, and, and Sam Worthington opens his eyes and we're in. And we're on, you know, Pandora and we're in this adventure. I took my family a few days later that weekend and they were instantly blown away my son was nine my second oldest was seven and my daughter was six and they were completely blown away the colors the stimulation of the palette that James Cameron painted on the screen for us in the colors and the textures of of Pandora the movement the state-of-the-art you know mocap 
uh, with Zoe Zaldana and, and, and Sam Worthington and, and, and Sigourney Weaver in their Navi, you know, forms. I mean, the action, the movement, the juxtaposition of kind of, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really what I built. I, 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 the reason I'm so excited about it, buy it because I can source it and tell you that X-Force was me putting the kind of Kevin Costner, Robin Hood, uh, aesthetic alongside the Terminator 2 aesthetic, futuristic weaponry with kind of medieval weaponry. And that was my secret formula. That's why Shatterstar looked more medieval with swords and double bladed swords and, and, uh, and, and didn't lift a gun, but, but then Cable had his giant vacuum cleaner, space age, futuristic guns that we see now, you know, depicted all the time. I get, I get memes all the time about Rob Liefeld guns coming to life under the military or some new scientific experimentational weapon or gun or cannon. So Avatar has that same, you know, the Navi with their, um, more, more, uh, basic weaponry spears, bows, arrows, giant bows and arrows, but it's, it's more medieval. And then giant space exoskeleton robotic, you know, forms the, the high, high end, helicopters and, and different different um, machines that, that the space marines utilized. It and, and the Navi are flying dragons. Okay. Blew my mind. Well, it goes on to break every record possible and hangs on for, uh, I guess, a decade until Avengers Endgame unseats it. I have had people look at me in the face and tell me that Avatar cheated to get its record because it had 3D technology and the 3D charge up. And I'm like, okay, look, whatever that may have been, and that all may be true, but it was necessary to the way that he saw and he envisioned it. And again, I, I spoke a couple of weeks ago, I was at D23 and they showed four different scenes from Way of Water. But before they did, they handed us all these new 3D glasses and a little glass cleaner with Avatar Way of Water on it. And we saw about 12 to 13 minutes of extended scenes, four different scenes altogether. One was an explosive jungle action scene, guns, arrows, spears all over again. I was riveted. There's underwater scenes. There's, um, you know, village scenes where everyone's arguing. There's stuff that takes place in the lab. They really gave us a great snapshot of what we should expect. And uh, I was thrilled. I thought it was, uh, as far as getting me hyped, it got me hyped right after Indiana Jones 5. That that was like the apex uh, experience. And then Avatar, Way of the Water was right underneath it. And, and the two of them dominated everything else. Everything else from Lucasfilm. Everything else, everything else Star Wars. Everything else Marvel Comics related. I felt like Indy and, and Avatar were that resonant. I talked to some of my friends. They were even still kind of skeptical. Eh, eh, kind of, eh, you know, not sold, not sold. Then they go to this re-release, which made $30 million worldwide, the re-release of Avatar, a movie that we all own, most of us. I have my 4K brilliant Avatar edition. It looks great on my TV, on my 4K television. It has great depth, but I don't have a 3D television. I haven't seen Avatar again in 3D, but I only, only ever saw it in 3D. And when I say my kids were seeing it, I would look down the aisle, and again, we didn't just take them. We took my my, my son Luke had a best friend named Luke. Okay, um, Chase had had his really good friend. Okay, and and there was Landon, and there was 
all, all sorts of different friends. We had a big group of of uh, of boys that came along with us that night that we all saw it. And um, my wife showed me that later that week, my daughter broke into the makeup and kind of put made blue and green on her face. And she became a Navi too. And she was six. This movie resonated. This movie had impact. It had tremendous impact. And yet now you read people go, well, it wasn't very good. And then there's this long diatribe that everyone continues to put forth that it had no cultural footprint, that there was no further adventures of Avatar, no big action figure, um, big, uh, you know, uh, whether it's action figures, video game wave, comic books. Well, there was action figures at the time. They weren't well promoted or pushed, and they came out at a time where the toy business was really on the rocks. Uh, Star Wars hadn't even really made a big dent uh, since Revenge of the Sith and the Clone Wars. They weren't really burning up. The Marvel Age of Toys hadn't really ter- taken off yet. But to, the, the Avatar tours were actually in the grocery stores. They were in the Barnes & Noble. There was a chain called Borders before it broke down. They had a kiosk of Avatar stuff. But it's the movie. The movie in and of itself with the 3D application was like going and taking a ride. And I felt the same way about Top Gun Maverick earlier this year. But the thing about the 3D is that's way gone. Like, like, like it was part of the experience that Cameron intended for us to have as an artist. That's how he wanted to cultivate it. That is why there is so much depth in each and every frame. The, 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 there is so much mid-ground, foreground, and background. I mean, that it, all three levels are constantly on display. And I'm going to tell you, in the new way of the water footage, it feels like there's another level, a fourth level. There's like a background, a further mid-ground, a middle ground, and then a foreground, and then maybe even a fifth, a super foreground. I mean, it is really made for the depth and the technology and the rendering and the figures and the mocap looks even more spectacular than it did unbelievably 13 years ago. I mean, 13 years ago. But nowadays, bringing up Top Gun Maverick, I saw Top Gun Maverick several times in IMAX, so I did the upcharge there. That's the IMAX surcharge. Then I discovered 4DX. People had told me about it. I'd never seen it. That it, you move the whole time. You're kicking right, left, forward, backwards. They spray water on you. I mean, the the, 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 the seats rumble. It's, it's an absolute theme park ride. Then there's, you know, Super DX. I don't know what the exact term it was, but the screen is bent around you. You are watching a circular screen so that part of the frames of the screen are on the right and the left. It's not all happening right in front of you. And these are all giant upcharges. 40X was almost $30 each for me and my wife. Just under 60 bucks for the two of us to go that. Because I, I knew if I, if I was going to entice my wife to go see <laughs> Maverick in a theater for a third time because she's not a do-over person and she'd already seen it twice with me that I needed to sell her on something and she had fun she even said this is this is like a theme park ride this is what movie theaters are doing now to entice us and I want that movie going experience to continue and so I guess what I'm saying is look at that box office 30 million worldwide for a movie we all own we all come on it was the best-selling DVD at the time too it was before like video on demand so it was just DVD so just don't even get, get in there and try and quantify that. No, 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 I don't own it. You probably owned it. You probably got rid of it. Give me a break. <clears throat> Avatars in all our houses. But I'm going to take you back. Again, speaking of Cameron and how people, so they're continuing to bet against him all the time. All the time, people are continuing to bet against this guy. It is just insane to me. 
but I went ahead and I remember the, you, you want to know where, when, when I heard the first uh, critical lambasting of Avatar, I was at a Starbucks. I had seen the trailers, the early trailers. I didn't know what to expect. Then, then you'll even see in my tweets again, going back 13, 14 years in anticipation based on the trailers. I'm extremely, you know, excited. I always say I bring the receipts. Look, I, I went and I, I wouldn't go on and share this with you if I hadn't gone on and, you know, dug deep and looked and seen that I can find evidence of my own enthusiasm for this film, which I felt was going to be easy to find. And it was just do that quick search, Robert Liefeld, avatar, James Cameron, you know, it'll, it'll come out. You know, I, I took screenshots because again, I was extremely enthusiastic. It had, the bottom line, that third act, I love the movie, but that third act with the juxtaposition of the dragons, archaic mythic creatures, medieval weapons against super tech sci-fi weaponry that stuff turns me on it always will and nobody does it better than cameron let me say that again nobody does it does it better than james cameron let me say it one more time no one does it better than james cameron james cameron obviously was a huge influence on me why his visuals i think i've shared this with you guys before but let me take you back to 1984 in the biltmore hotel at the once a month comic convention in Los Angeles at the Biltmore Hotel. Again, Marat Michaels would go there. I, I, that's where I met Marat, is at that convention. I was 17, he was 13. We were both, you know, aspiring young comic book artists, and it was fun. It was fun seeing it through his eyes that he liked John Byrne and Paul Smith the same way I did. And there's five years, four years between us. Well, at the Biltmore Los Angeles comic book convention and, 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 and Denzian's. Huh, Denzians. I just dropped Denzians. Maybe for the first time on this podcast. Citizens of Los Angeles, Southern California will remember this uh, convention very well. They always had kind of one key guest. And this time, they had the Arnold Schwarzenegger poster for Terminator. It hadn't come out yet. And on his promotional tour was the young writer-director, James Cameron. We met in the ballroom where he was uh, showing up, showing off some scenes from the movie. But at the end... He unveiled that he had, it was about three and a half feet, the actual working Terminator exoskeleton that they shot with uh, that crawls after Sarah Connor, Linda Hamilton at the, at the finale. They used it in, in he, he said that, you know, they used it throughout the entire shoot. <clears throat> it was remote control. It was like, a, again, the three and a half foot Terminator, the exoskeleton, once his, all his skin comes off. And so, so no matter, whenever you saw that, this was employed at some point during that, the, the film that you saw in 1984. He invited everybody. That, I'm going to tell you, this this ballroom probably could have seat, seated 150 plus. Maybe there was 35, 40 of us. He invited everyone to come down to the stage. Young James Cameron, everybody come down to the stage. Everybody, I want, I want you to get as, as good a look as possible. He was there hand-selling his work. He was going to local conventions in the same way that George Lucas did with Star Wars in 1976. In the summer of 1976, George Lucas did the exact same thing. Jim Cameron was going to small shows trying to push the word of mouth on his sci-fi epic. And so he gathered us and he, he asked for people not to reach out and touch, but he wanted us right at the edge of the platform that he was standing on, of the stage. And he was going to give us a... Uh, representation of how the remote control Terminator would lift his arms, walk, and he did the whole thing, and it was very dazzling. 
He was a great showman. Um, and he hooked me. And I love Terminator. I saw it when I was in high school. I could not have been more excited for to, t- to find out that he was given a huge budget and on the basis of the success of Terminator going to be doing something with aliens. That exceeded every possible uh, expectation I ever had. If you go back to the summer of 1986 and aliens, it blew people's minds because it was such a gear shift. It was an action film. It was not a horror film. It was an action film, a big, giant action film. I mean, with massive, giant set pieces, uh, much larger in scope and vision than Ridley Scott's original. And 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 that just kind of like sealed the deal. Like this guy is our new sci-fi maestro. And again, it was the 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 bridge that so much of my generation exited kind of the Ewoks and 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 Return of the Jedi. Again, I've I mentioned how John Favreau said the same. Suddenly you're into Ridley Scott and Paul Verhoeven and James Cameron and there's no looking back. And you don't want to go back to, you know, Endor with the teddy bears. And uh part of James Cameron's Aliens, I cannot really underscore how important that was in his filmography. The Abyss was much more thoughtful, but I remember being at the 10 o'clock screening the night that came out with my friends as Ed Harris ascends and drops through that black abyss down, down to the bottom of the ocean. And I mean, it felt like it took 10 minutes. I, I, I loved how deliberate James Cameron asked for our patience while he dropped and dropped and dropped. And, and on, a, on a giant big screen, the biggest screen that we could see it on in Orange County, it was extremely effective and unsettling. And you're like, oh my gosh, how's he ever getting back up? He's gone so deep. And uh, again, Cameron, massive visionary, but then T2 just rewrote all, just all the visual cues with the the the, the, the special effects, the T1000. Uh, I mean, the, the, the visual imagery of Arnold and how he looked, the leather jacket, the, the Ray-Bans. Um, him on the motorcycle, that epic, you know, chase through the LA aqueduct. I mean, just phenomenal, just phenomenal. Linda Hamilton as now the new uh, female badass warrior, uh, you know, type. I mean, elevating female action. I mean, he he literally took where he left off with Sigourney Weaver and elevated it with Linda Hamilton. And it was just so amazing. Why am I telling you this? Because at the True Lies premiere, they had a True Lies premiere here in Orange County. I took 60 people from my Extreme Studios. Yes, it was fun to work with me uh, at my studio. Uh, My publicist, who was also Arnold Schwarzenegger's publicist, made sure that everybody from my studio got in and they were premiering it down in a theater across from South Coast Plaza that is still there today. They still, uh, it's a a regal uh, cinema and we were in the largest theater. Arnold and Cameron introduced True, True Lies for all of us and we all saw it about a week before it hit the theaters. But... Myself, my wife, my sister, and a few others were able to go to the after party that was taking place at Planet Hollywood, which is just open. They had just opened a Planet Hollywood across from South Coast Plaza, which was across from the theater. So it was all part of this big Orange County charity event. It is there that I bid on and won uh, a walk-on role in Arnold's next movie, which would have been Jingle All the Way. I decided I didn't want to fly to New York and do... The, the cameo role was no big deal. I was happy to give the money to charity, but I did purchase the Conan sword from Arnold. But that night, as we are getting our food at the buffet, at the party, at the Planet Hollywood, I'm right there with Cameron. Now remember, this is 1994, I, uh, 1995. I have had a great run of success, sold millions and millions of comics, but I am tongue-tied. There's James Cameron scooping up the same pasta that I am about to scoop up and put on my plate. 
And I said, uh, 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 Mr. Cameron, uh, James Cameron, and he said, yes. Immediately stopped and said, yes. I said, uh, uh, my, my name is, is Rob Liefeld, and I, and he stopped me, and he says, I know who you are. <laughs> and it, it sounds threatening. That's exactly how he said it. But it, it wasn't judgmental. And he said, I'm aware. I know your work. And I, and I froze because I was like, I've just been stripped naked. He knows that Cable is so influenced. He's heard of Cable. He knows that I've been so influenced by Terminator and all his work. And I said to Mr. Cameron, I stumbled as he just stared at me. And I said, I, 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 you, you're so influenced all my work. And, 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 and I, I feel like you've influenced you know, everything I put down on the page for the last five years. And, and I, I created this character called Cable. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Rob, I'm aware. I'm aware. Nice to meet you. And I, I was like, oh, crap. I was like, the maestro just put Junior in his place. But it was awesome. Uh, the hand of God touched my shoulder. And, and I know who you are. Yes, I'm aware. <laughs> so, look, at least I was able to tell one of my childhood teenage idols, you know, how much I absolutely loved him. And uh, he was totally cool. Completely cool. Very polite, very kind. Um, it, especially, I'll, I'll be honest, Tom Arnold, also hilarious in True Lies, not a nice guy. Uh, acted like big shot Tom. When I'm like, wait, but the director was so nice. And of course, Arnold is extremely pleasant and 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 gregarious because he's uh, the original salesman. And plus, I had already you know done a bunch of charity auction bids. And I think they're like, who's this kid that's buying walk-on rolls and buying? And I, I call myself a kid because I am in my 20s. I am in my 20s at this time. So just understand where I'm, where I'm coming from. But James Cameron is uh, a visual maestro. He always puts the camera in the right place. When I see shots from either the new Avatar or I see the old Avatar, when they when, when Quaritch's men, all the copters, all the flying machines are flying among the flying, uh, uh, you know, through the skyline of Pandora, Pandora and uh, and then you see Jake Scully and all the dragons are you know on top of the rocks and then they do their free fall their dive that is an epic camera shot an epic framing blocking of that image James Cameron has instilled his imagery into what we do and what we love so much to the extent that you know I feel like his images enter the room before he does I mean, again, he was able to make a billion-dollar franchise, not franchise, a billion-dollar event film out of a movie that we all knew the ending to. We all know that the Titanic crashed against an iceberg ripping the, the, the bottom of the boat, which flooded it and sunk it. And we all sat again and again and again and cried and were deeply moved because that movie dominated from December through March. It was a three-month monster at the box office. Why am I mentioning Cameron and all his visuals? Because I believe he understands that we go to movie theaters to be completely immersed in another world, and that's why it continues to work for him. Whether it's the world that he built out between his Terminator films, the world he expanded with Aliens, the incredible uh, kind of alien encounter of the abyss, his superflex of like why he would be the best James Bond director of all time with True Lies, which is one of the best James Bond movies I've ever seen, not named James Bond, but but utilizing a kick-ass, you know, Austrian super agent 
in in the form of of of, of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, this guy just he leads with his visuals. So I first heard of the my, the first lambasting of uh, Avatar was uh, and it really blew me away. I I, I couldn't believe how um, I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it petty. It was extremely petty. And I've talked about how there are writers in the business that don't value the visuals as much. They want to blather on with their endless dialogue as if they're, you know, doing a, a Tarantino film where so much of the dialogue is important, but not at the expense of the visuals. Well, so much of what was said here uh, <clears throat> was that I'm going to share with you has been eliminated, has been erased, and probably for the best given that it was really douchey to begin with. Um, because, you see, Mr. Brian Bendis somehow saw an advance screening of Avatar, and he decided to go to Twitter back in 2009 and show, show everyone uh, it's 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 it it was on Twitter. I've got the screenshot. <clears throat> he says he wrote a review, and and in it he says spectacle like no one's business. B i d n e s s. He's a writer. He knows what he's doing. He's spelling it kind of in a dismissive, almost mocking business. Spectacle like no one's business. Heavy-handed themes laid down with a sledgehammer. And here it is. And if he, James Cameron, ever wrote an intelligent line of dialogue, it would die of loneliness. Wow! Like, wow! I mean, again, so eventually, the rest of that review, he talks about how it's a bunch of dragons versus army, army men. And it's all mocking, and it's dismissive, and when I saw it a few days later, I couldn't believe that anyone would take this or him to the woodshed in that way. Let me read that again. Uh, Mr. Bendis writes, heavy-handed themes laid down with a sledgehammer. And if he, James Cameron, ever wrote an intelligent line of dialogue, it would die of loneliness. Oh my, like literally I'm not going to excessively curse. But good God almighty, this man has done roughly... $4 billion in, 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 in box office receipts put people's asses in seats like, like no one else before him because this guy doesn't have the same resume in terms of directing movies that someone like a Spielberg does. He doesn't have as many films. I mean, Cameron has been as finicky about directing as someone like a Tarantino given the, especially how long he's been around given that he was, you know, making movies in the, in the early 80s. He had a 10-year start on Tarantino, and Tarantino may end up, you know, making more movies than, than Cameron because he is so particular. 13 years between Avatar films. But this is what I was getting at the Starbucks. I, I, was, I was always going to the Starbucks very early mornings, read the paper, read Twitter, enjoy my coffee. And I read this, and I was like, oh, Bendis got a advanced screening, and then shits on the movie. And 
says as rude comments like this. And I'm like, what is going on? At the time, he is employed by Marvel. He is a dedicated Marvel employee. So he's in, he is in the service. He is, he is serviced with writing comic book entertainment, which falls into the same, same realm, if not exact category, of sci-fi movies. Those dollars cross over Maybe not directly. It's not movie versus movie. It's definitely an apple versus an orange, but it's it's genre. A genre writer is shitting on the greatest genre writer, director of all time. The guy has $2 billion franchises to his name. One is completely original and is about to come out with another one. And the reason I share the Bendis thing with you, and the, and again, his it's all been deleted. If you search it on Twitter, you can find Rich Johnston still contains in Bleeding Cool some of the uh, review, which I just read from you. Uh, he, he <clears throat> the tweet that is still able to access that is also um, reported on was reported on December 11th, 2009. And he says, my review has been misquoted by some. No, it hasn't. Those are the exact words. Rich Johnson, uh, again, wrote an entire article on it. If you Google Bendis and Avatar, this stuff will find you. It's out there. I, it, it didn't take but a few seconds. But again, it's a representation of how comfortable people are coming up to the mic and shitting on one of the greatest directors, one of the greatest producers, one of the greatest imaginary visionaries that we've ever had. And it's happening again. Oh, Avatar 2 is not going to do anything. Avatar, it only made money because of 3D. Avatar is not going to be great. Then, even a couple critics who had been like, nobody wants to see Avatar. They mea culpa They even used the word mea culpa. Yes, I'm looking at you, Scott Mendelson. I love you. I love your work. I love your article. But you have been challenging the notion that anyone would enjoy Avatar for years. And that it has the old, there is no cultural footprint. Come on, man. My kids loved Avatar. We saw it as a family repeatedly. That wasn't the first time turned into a second time, turned into a third time, turned into a fourth time. I kept going. I saw it nine times in the theaters. I just immersed myself in the world. It was an escape. That's why we go to these movies that tickle us. We're in the cockpit with the pilots running the mission, the training, and then the actual execution of the mission in Maverick. We escape into that cockpit with those characters. We escape to Pandora and we ride those dragons and we battle those bad guys with superior technology each and every time and it feels fantastic. But people seem very comfortable clearing their throats and shitting on someone far more successful than they are. And it happens repeatedly again and again and again and it is, it is a shame. I do not know why people need to rally against other creatives, but they do. And this is the stupidest incident. Like, if he ever wrote an intel, great, that's awesome. Well, I guess, I guess he's really worried about that as he continues to write Avatar two, three, and four, all of which are going to do spectacular business because they are going to sweep us off our feet with their visual wizardry. Visual wizardry. You don't go to a movie to not be moved by images. And I do believe there's a segment of writers that they just want to write. They just want to write plays. And some of them crept into the comics and they threatened comics and comics did not move forward uh, while, while they were at the helm. It was only until visual uh, uh, kind of some real imagine, imaginative visual representation found itself in comics. And I've always said when comics were safe to splash again, they found people's interest, but they went into almost a dead coma. 
Now, it's interesting talking about today's comics because we're going to juxtapose some of what went on back then with what's going on today as we segue into our next segment. Yes, I believe in James Cameron. Yes, I'm looking forward to Avatar. Yes, you can take it from me. It's going to be a giant, huge success. I don't know that it's going to make a billion dollars. I know it's going to be a giant, huge success. And we can check back together on that in just a few months as it's going to come out for the holiday season. But we are going to pivot to our second subject of the day, which is these 1981 excerpts of Comic-Con panels from 1981 that discuss not only the relevancy of comic books and comic book creators, but what editors do. That's the name of one of them. What editors do. And we're going to dive right into that in just a minute. So as I mentioned before, so much of these magazines that I've saved are are great snapshots. Snapshots. They're great, uh, like time capsule material that is rich in in its uh, in in the 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 information and the history that it contains. And uh, the November 1981 Comics Journal has a Kevin Nolan X Men cover with Wolverine and Colossus and. Nightcrawler, it looks like they're all watching TV together. But inside, it contains two really great uh, excerpts, uh, transcripts, if you will, of two comic panels that went down at the San Diego Comic-Con in 1981. So summer 1981, these were your um, luminaries gathered together to share with you, uh, you know, their adventures in the creation of comic books. And... It's, it's exciting to be able to bring that to you guys because you're going to hear some stuff that I think is interesting in regards to how it plays out uh, with with how comics are made today. I mean, there, there's a creative discussion that, that no less than the amazing Frank Miller is involved with, who at the time was absolutely ruling the charts. And then there's an editorial... Uh, panel that I'm going to share with you some excerpts from. And in both cases, these books, I mean, these, these representatives who are on tap to, uh, to, to share the information, the editor in chiefs of both, of both companies are there. So it's like, we've got the top dogs as they were you know, I'll tell you right now, when I went to San Diego Comic-Con in 1987, after I'd just been hired at WonderCon a few months earlier, uh, the editor-in-chief was there. Tom DeFalco was there also. Tom DeFalco, Jim Shooter, there was a crossover. Uh, Dick Giordano was there, 1988, same thing. Tom DeFalco, Dick Giordano. You know, this last year, C.B. Cebulski, I, 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 the editor-in-chiefs are, are generally always in attendance, and it's exciting. It's exciting for us as as fans. And let me tell you something. One of the one of the big events of of the Bronze Age of comics of my youth of I've mentioned it dozens and dozens of times is the death of Electra. Electra arrived in Daredevil and stimulated everyone across all of 1980 and all of 1981. The culmination of her original story is December of 1981. It was right before Christmas that the final chapter of her original story arc. So it was a 24-issue story arc. When Frank Miller is talking to you at this panel, we are six months from him hitting that culmination. We are in the middle of the Electra Saga. We are about 16 months into it, and there is a good six months left 
before he is, or about 18 months into it. It's good, good, you know, a good six months left before that culminates, and and he gets even more popular than he is at this panel, and he is ridiculously popular at this um, at this panel with the creatives. Uh, they ask him. They they ask uh, Frank about. There's there's a lot of talk about his approach to Daredevil and uh, why he was able to do what he did. Someone says, "How could how how were you able to get away with all of the violence and you know mature material on his panel?" I should tell you is Roy Thomas, is Denny O'Neill, is Louise Jones prior to her becoming Louise Simonson. Because she marries Walt Simonson. I believe she's married to Bruce Jones at this point, who was a comic book writer, who was doing Kazar, who would go on to do great, amazing, both independent work as work as well as work with Marvel Comics. Bruce Jones took over the Hulk in the early 2000s, and I, and I loved it. It was staggering. But his Kazar was as visionary for that character as Frank Miller's vert vision for Daredevil, except Kazar is a guy in a jungle. And like my retailer says, shirtless guys have a low ceiling and I've got to believe after after Kazar and Tarzan and Korak and Tor and Killraven and Commandy his whole like shirtless guys have limited possibilities I, there's something it, it's the most wicked science ever dropped on me <laughs> and yet when it was dropped on me about four years ago I was like wait there wow th- there's something here so Bruce Jones work on Kazar didn't have the high ceiling that Daredevil did. But someone asks Frank Miller, how were you able to get away with all of the different material that you brought into Daredevil? Frank Miller says, and I'm going to read this to you, directly from the November 1981 Comics Journal. Frank says, well, I was in the fortunate position of being on a book that wasn't selling well. It didn't have good sales and it didn't have any merchandising deals with movies or toys attached to it. I was given free reign. It's much different than Superman and Spider-Man who are written by several writers and publishers in different books and there's a lot more money involved doing both of those characters and therefore there's a lot more people who are in charge of them. Roy Thomas weighs in. Roy Thomas of the Avengers and Conan and All-Star Squadron and uh, I mean a a gazillion, uh, Thor, I mean the editor-in-chief for a period of time during the Bronze Age of comics following Stan Lee. Roy Thomas weighs in. He's on the panel. He goes, but now because first with another writer and now on your own, you being able to do Daredevil the way that you want to do it, it's now Marvel's best-selling title, which shows the value of the individual talent. It makes a difference. I mean, I'm sure that whatever else happened, what Green Lantern was worth to DC, those Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill, Green Lantern, Green Arrow issues, they got all the publicity out of them, came close to making it. That's the important thing. Kazar as a direct sales title may have stronger than it would have been if it had just been a newsstand book, dot, 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 he trails off. But he wanted to get in there. The moderator, and, and this panel would be so much better, I gotta be honest, This really these, these really show the limits of a moderator. Uh, a good moderator would have gotten a lot, out, lot more out of this, but this moderator is not strong. The moderator says, well, remember the X-Men. That was originally canceled, everyone, and then, and then brought back and become a bestseller. Roy Thomas says, those were the ones that we all started off on. Everyone had to do issues of X-Men or issues of Daredevil when they started off. Basically saying they were the experimental books. Louise Jones says, there's a lot of advantage taking over a book that no one thinks is going to sell better 
than what you will do with it. Danny O'Neill says, yeah, nobody pays attention to those books. Louise Jones says, we love those kinds of books, okay? Um, But I thought it was important to show you that Frank Miller gives you the same answer that I've always given. The book was doing poor. It had no notice. It had no licensing. It had no merchandise. That's that's really interesting that he actually tags that on. I mean, it really was on an island all by himself. And then Roy Thomas to say, it became our best-selling title, and that is the power of the individual talent you maybe you're about to break into the comics industry or the movie industry or whatever industry television maybe broadway music your talent matters your ability to execute your vision will be the difference at the end of the day and if that is the most important thing you hear today at the 51 mark the 51 minute mark of my podcast and i hope that resonates with you i hope it inspires you individual talent matters it is the value again roy thomas says it shows the value of the individual talent. I mean, get incredible. Now, here's here's something else. Some someone asks Frank Miller about: <clears throat> Could you speak to different techniques that you bring to writing and creating your work? Frank, again, this is 1981. Okay, let me tell you, I am in 1981. I'm 13 years old this summer, really. Been, been been collecting comics at that point for half my life. <laughs> but I am riveted. Frank Miller is a god to me at 13 years old. Frank Miller here, when they're asking about his technique, he says, technique is something that you need even when you're inspired much of the time. There's lots of people who can come along and have hot flashes of creativity, but that's not enough to plot a story. Plotting a story is a very complicated thing, and it generally takes a lot of work. You are using the word technique wrong, he says to the audience member. Let's go deep into this. Because again, when I took over my own books and the books Jim Lee took over X-Men, we took over the plots. What did Frank Miller just say there? What did one of the greatest talents of all space and time say? Plotting a story is very complicated. It takes a lot of work. We'll come back to this, but it, it worth bearing out when you see somebody that says plot and art, as I did, I was written, I, plot is story, plot is story. They're going to, in the editorial uh, section of this that I'm going to share with you, they talk about the difference between plot and script. Again, plotting is the story. Without the plot, there's an empty page. Frank Miller really filled my soul today when he I, I read this script, this quote, and I and I screen grabbed it. That's not enough to plot a story. Having a hot flash of creativity, plotting a story is a very complicated thing, and it generally takes a lot of work. Boom. There is not one issue of New Mutants or X Force where I co-plotted. I did the entire plot like Frank on his books. Introduced all these characters. I would then continue to plot all of the Youngbloods and the Brigades and the Supremes and the Prophets in the early years of Image. It was my, let's say, speciality. It's probably the thing that ultimately I did best, better than anyone because I knew where to end the page turns, where to keep the book moving. Extremely exciting. Re- really, really uplifting to read this about Frank who emphasizes the importance of plot. Plot is story. And right here what he's saying is, This is a very difficult thing to do. This is not simple. It is 
Frank Miller's own words, it's complicated and it takes a lot of work. It is very complicated and generally takes a lot of work. Boom, hammer dropped. I mean, that is, I just feel like that's really significant. <clears throat> In the editorial, I, I wish I could tell you that they said more interesting things. They just don't. A, a couple of the, the moderator did a terrible job. And, and wasted so much of the great talent that was up there by by indulging in. Um, they were obsessed with kind of the religious right and slash the moral majority. And because they were making noise about censoring comics, so much of this panel wastes all of these brilliant minds by having them weigh in on basically political matters. Again, when you come to, I, I tell you guys, when I stand and give the panels that I give, it's because I've been to many boring panels where I felt like, we didn't get anywhere near the potential of the creatives during the uh, the panel, and that's why. Again, if I'm if you're going to sit in one of my panels and hear me talk, I am going to do my best to entertain you and talk about subjects that you like. Again, it's just I've been that fan that was at that panel where they wasted and I didn't get near enough the opinions because people went down bad rabbit holes. Also in the Comics Journal, number 68, November 1981, they have an editorial panel. On this editorial panel <clears throat> is Dick Giordano, Jim Shooter. Dick Giordano, publisher of DC Comics. Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief of DC Comics. They had the other editors represented are Len Wein, Louise Jones, Julie Schwartz, and Danny O'Neill. <clears throat> Denny O'Neill was Frank's editor on Daredevil. Denny also uh, wrote key issues of both Batman uh, and Green Arrow, the Green Lantern, Green Arrow. The, 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 the acclaimed stuff with Neil Adams is all stuff that was done in accordance with Denny O'Neill as the writer. <clears throat> so they uh, introduce everyone again. James Jim Shooter. Editor-in-Chief Marvel Comics, Dick Giordano. Okay, or at this point, they call him talent editor. Dick Giordano, talent editor for DC Comics. Danny O'Neill, editor for Marvel Comics. Louise Jones, Marvel editor. Julius Schwartz, DC senior editor. And Len Wein, editor of DC Comics. And they go around and they basically say, well, what is an editor? The first thing Len Wein says, Len Wein, who created, co-created Wolverine, the new X-Men, so much uh, wrote, wrote uh, uh, Swamp Thing, co-created Swamp Thing. I mean, the guy is a pedigreed, important creator, especially in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Epic runs on uh, the Hulk, on Spider-Man, on Green Lantern, on Swamp Thing. X-Men. Len says, an editor is a great scapegoat. Since no one seems to have anything profound to say, it may be easier to open the floor to questions. You can ask them and we will try and keep our brilliant answers short, but keep you amused. So, um, first question from the audience is to Jim Shooter, why'd you guys kill Phoenix? I'm going to tell you, had, had Jean Grey Phoenix died in X-Men 137 with the, the cacophony of sound that, that could have been created with today's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, it would have been deafening. I, I, it would have been harrowing because... I feel like there was just a few people that got really loud at the last season of Game of Thrones. Which my family, we are all very diverse in our tastes. We don't always like the same thing, but we all thought it was really good. I see a lot of people coming to the table now going, I rewatched that last season of Game of Thrones. You know, that one that I totally shit on. And wow, it's so good. 
Had they killed Jean Grey, again, Game of Thrones, I think a couple storylines went in a direction that people didn't like because the production values weren't, weren't bad. The acting suddenly didn't get shitty. It was still the same great product actors, you know, directing, storytelling, but some of the characters didn't act in the way that the public wanted them to act, so there was vitriol. Jean Grey would have really, it's just, uh, when I read this and hear this guy ask Jim Shooter this question, and he says, look, why did we kill Phoenix? That's not a question for this panel. He immediately dismisses it because he recognizes that's a good moderator. He knew that's not why everyone else came to this. Um, uh, but he, he gets into it and he, gets, and, and he immediately dismisses it. And another question comes up, and this is a great one. It says, how much communication do you have with regards to the use of supporting characters throughout Marvel Comics? Like, who gets to use Doctor Doom next month and that kind of thing. And it's really ironic because Jim Shooter, I'm going to tell you right now, he's giving this answer and he has already just dealt with this because it was in late, it was in early, the books were already published in February and March of 1981. Chris Claremont put Dave Cockrum, Chris Claremont welcomed Dave Cockrum back to the X-Men. John Byrne left. His last issue ended the 80s. By the time 1981 rolled about around, Dave Cockrum had come back to the book that he helped launch, the new X-Men, the, the man that gave us Colossus, the man that gave us Storm, Nightcrawler, so many others. He rejoined with Claremont to pick up where they left off because when he left, John Byrne did a nice three-and-a-half-year run. Now Dave was back. Hitting his deadlines, he did a brilliant extended run. They used Dr. Doom. Dr. Doom was in three issues of... The X-Men, well, John Byrne was freaking out because he was now the writer and artist of the Fantastic Four and he was pissed that Doctor Doom was in the X-Men because he felt like he had the authority to dictate what Doom did and didn't do. He went on to define, in an issue of Fantastic Four, he basically was talking to a Doom robot, the actual Doctor Doom proclaiming that he was actually a Doctor Doom, talking to one of his Doom robots and he lit a match off the robot's face mask. And... The robot basically said, I was dealing with the X-Men. John Byrne was so incensed that he felt a need within the Fantastic Four to address that the Chris Claremont issues with Doctor Doom weren't real. It wasn't the real Doctor Doom. It was this Doom robot. Check that out. How ridiculous is that, right? But that is Jim Shooter had probably just negotiated this at the time of this question. And so he says... In regards to how much communication do you have in regards to the use of supporting characters, say who gets to use Dr. Doom next month, that sort of thing. Well, Mr. Jim Shooter says, well, at Marvel Comics, his answer immediately launches into, well, at Marvel Comics, that's been one of our problems because we have tried to be a co one cohesive unit. That's his words, one cohesive unit. I can't speak for DC, but when I was there, each editor had his own little company. I gather that's probably changed by now. But at Marvel, it's been one of my one of our problems. It's my job. And when it goes wrong, I've goofed up. What we've done recently, we've created a giant flowchart so that we know where everybody is and we get together and have meetings a lot and talk about it. I encourage all the crossovers and stuff because I think that's neat. And in our usual disheveled, disorganized manner, we go up to each other in the halls, say, Chris Claremont, he mentions him by name, is writing a story and comes over to Denny O'Neill and says, oh my God, they're using the same villain that I'm using in Iron Man. What are we going to do? I am telling you, this is an echo of what actually went down with Chris Claremont using Doctor Doom in the X-Men and John Byrne who left 
X-Men because of conflicts with Chris Claremont now being the writer and artist of Fantastic Four having a tizzy that his featured A-list villain was in three consecutive issues of the X-Men. And who knows, maybe Chris did that to flex on John. I know you're going to the FF. I have Marvel's best-selling book at the time. It would lose its perch and become the number two for a brief period to Frank Miller's Daredevil. But he's still top of the charts, okay? So maybe they're tweaking each other. But the fact that Jim uses him in this in, in this example is fascinating. Chris Claremont goes up to Denny O'Neill. Oh my God, what are we going to do? They're using this villain over in Iron Man because Denny was also the editor of Iron Man. Jim Shooter says, we work it out. It seems haphazard, but it's small enough. It's a small, small enough place speaking of Marvel, and everybody's willing to go and talk to each other in the halls, so it works. Isn't that right, Denny? And Denny O'Neill goes, uh, yeah. And then Jim Shooter laughs and says, he says, more or less. Len Wein then jumps in and says, there absolutely used to be pocket universes at DC. Every editor had his own collection of books, and although the characters might move around within those books, they certainly didn't move to another editor's books. We're trying to alleviate that problem. We're trying to get more cross-communication, but it's the same situation that you have at Marvel. There are occasions where they cross over. You think you have mentioned that you're using Joker in some other book, and you haven't. I think they had Metallo appearing in Brave and the Bold one month and World's Finest the following month, and strangely enough, in both cases, the editors who were using Metallo were not the Superman editor, Julius Swartz. We all cross-communicated. Everyone thought it was a different month. We tried to cover it in the copy in the second story to explain why we had done that. But mistakes happen. You try to avoid them. And I think it's getting better. I think there's more interming- inter- intermingling. And so then they move on to the next question. But I thought that was very interesting in regards to both Jim Shooter and Len Wein addressing the issue of borrowing of characters and policing characters in different... in. Uh, <clears throat> In, in, in different titles. Here's a really great share with you guys, jumping down a couple of questions. Somebody says, how do you motivate? This is a question from the audience. How do you motivate uh, your talent? I'm an editor myself, and the problem of getting people to want to do good work and get it on time is an incredible one. All of you have had magazines in which people have produced excellent work, and I'd like to know how you have gotten them to do that. Um, Danny O'Neill says, whips are useful. And it says, laughter from the audience. Uh, the, the person who asked the question says, oh, I'll have to try that. Uh, Julie Swartz says, what do you mean excellent work? <clears throat> the audience member says, oh boy, are we going to get to that? Well, it, it's work that I've enjoyed and believe is excellent. Julie Swartz, who was the longtime Superman editor, as already mentioned by Lynn Ween, says, well, I think any artist who has handed a major assignment is expected to do excellent work. If you're wondering, will he get it in on time? Thing, this is not a thing that can be worked on by the time clock. Sometimes he may have a difficult script. I remember back when I worked with artist Carmen Infantino, he did two pages a day, day in, day out. Sometimes he'd come in very bleary-eyed. I'd say, what's the matter? He said, I worked till two o'clock in the morning. I'd say, it didn't take you till two o'clock in the morning to do two pages. He'd say, I did four pages, two of which I tore up. I didn't like them. So even a good artist, even a really good artist will not hand in work that is less than excellent. Hey, Louise Jones. Again, this is Louise Simonson. Why don't you say something? Why don't you say hello to everyone? Louise Jones says, hello. She says, it's silly, but I I think what I do is babble a lot when people bring me in work that I think is superior to what they usually do or the best work that they've possibly done or work that just looks kind of neat. I go into ecstasies of pleasure and tell them, gee, this is really wonderful. And then they think, oh my God, if, if, if I don't bring in something this good next time, she's going to kill me. I can't let her down. I didn't mention Louise 
Jones, and you can see it in your X-Men comics, towards the end of the burn run all through the Conqueror. She is the editor of the X-Men. She is the editor of the X-Men family, and it continues when they expand to New Mutants. So she has a very pedigreed line of books. Um, I mean, with Denny O'Neill and Louise Jones on this panel, you've got the editor-in-chief in, in, in Jim Shooter, and then you've got the editors of their two top-selling books in, in Daredevil and X-Men. So I think it's funny where she says, uh, you know, that, that, that people freak out and go, oh my gosh, I have to keep doing something this good or I'll, I'll, otherwise I'll let her down. And she finishes it with a sentence that says, so they just keep doing it. We start off with really good talent too. And Len Wein says, right, that's the bottom line. I think there are elements of both in the above and I try and deal with them. I think it's enthusiasm. If there's anything that's contagious in this industry, it is enthusiasm. And, and as an editor, this is Len Wein talking, I try to be very enthusiastic. I try to get the people who work for me as enthusiastic as possible and I try and accomplish it in all places. He goes on to say, there are people who I think are doing far superior to work work to what they've done previously. Don Heck, for instance, particularly, is doing some wonderful work. The best stuff I believe he's ever done. And others, they get caught up in the work they're doing. They do it more for the pleasure of having done it sometimes than for what they get paid when they're finished doing with it. And I'm going to tell you right now, as somebody who worked for page rate early in my career, I didn't think about how much I was getting paid per page. I was thinking how much this page would rock the audience first, foremost, and then my editor by extension. So Len Wein is actually right. Once you just get the job, you figure like, what can I do to keep people engaged? And the enthusiasm is the key. So I 100%, 100% agree with everything that Len is putting forth here. Danny O'Neill, um, uh, Len, Len en ends with saying, it's, it's a matter of pride. It's a matter of instilling pride in people who are working on it. That is the bottom line. Danny O'Neill, Daredevil editor, go, you know, presiding over this amazing Frank Miller run, says, well, editing has been called one of the existential arts and that's because there aren't any rules particularly in this area i am dealing with maybe three dozen very very separate individuals at any given time some will respond to praise some will respond to being left alone and isolated and some want to be guided they want you to figuratively they want you figuratively alongside them at each and every step what you have to do is through experience and trying to remain open, find out what each individual needs are, how you can best help them do their very best work. And then insofar as you're able to give to them, whatever it is that they need, it might be a stern father figure number. It might be just a laissez-faire attitude. You have to figure out by trial and error what your people are going to respond to. Dick Giordano, talent editor for DC Comics and also like one of the all-time greatest inkers, embellishers, and a top talent. He he and Neil Adams together created so much fantastic art, and then Dick on his own is a fantastic artist. So much of the, what you, what you call merchandising and licensing art that you would have seen in the 70s and 80s was done by Dick, and it it's his, his Superman, his Wonder Woman, his Batman, his Aquaman, his... Dick Gir uh, his Dick Giordano, his Green Lantern, spectacular. He's an, an amazing artist. So the fact that he became an executive was a boon for everybody because I worked with Dick and, and, and Dick gave me my first job at Hawk and Dove, uh, or first job at DC and then gave me my raise on Hawk and Dove and then raised me and paid me even more towards the end of Hawk and Dove. He says here, Dick Giordano, following up with Denny O'Neill says, almost precisely what I would have said. I think part of that is simply creating the environment for creation that changes from artist to artist and writer to writer. Sometimes it requires talking 
taking into hand and other times it requires not taking somebody, not talking to somebody for three or four days. So again, it says sometimes it requires taking it into hand and other times it requires not talking to somebody for three or four days and just letting them do their own thing. But most often it requires, I think, trying to suit the material of the people that are going to do it the best. It really requires sense. It, it is really quite senseless to give someone who feels very, very close to moody material work that lacks mood. And it is equally senseless to give someone who's into the dynamics of superhero action a talky-talky story. So what we try and do is match our people together. We try to keep similarly-minded artists and writers working and collaborating together. Jim Shooter says... So how do we motivate people? Well, first I put on the hat and then I sort of loom over them and I say threateningly, all right, you do it. He's kidding. It says general laughter. He says, Jim Shooter says, actually, let me add, my problem is different. I don't have to motivate artists and writers. I have to motivate editors and being a master of diplomacy, that's always been my biggest problem. I basically do what I think Len said, which is I try and get the best people, the best people and try to get out of their way. I try to confine my input to cheerleading, going over what I consider to be my fundamentals and trying to have a sort of teaching learning relationship with them because I learn as much from them as they learn from me. We learn together. We sit down and I say, I don't like this comic book. And sometimes they'll tell me what's wrong with it. And sometimes I'll tell them what's wrong with it, but we both emerge knowing what's wrong with it and what not to do next time. The basic, the basic thing is to get people like Danny O'Neill and Louise Jones who have the skills and the advantage of Having fine editors is that if I find creative people who absolutely cannot work with Dennis J. O'Neill, the sweetheart of a man, or people who can't work with Louise, these people tend to be able to work with for the other guy. Having different personalities to match the different creative people, they sort themselves out. There have been extreme cases where people sorted themselves out all the way to a different company, but that's going to happen. That's always happened. It settles in after a while. People find a home where they're comfortable and then they do the good work. And that's what they want. We don't care how much things are worked on to get it that way. We accommodate every person as much as we possibly can and try and get them a good time. Try to make it a happy experience. There's one thing he says that I want to say. I was a freelancer for many years. Again, Jim Shooter is one of the youngest talents ever in comics. He started writing the Legion of Superheroes from home, mailing in stories and DC kept reading them and finally said, we should publish this guy's stories. And they gave his stories to such amazing artists as the long-standing celebrated Superman artist, Kurt Swan, no less. Jim was writing comic book superheroes and getting them published in 13, 14, 15 years old. He said, so he's saying, I was a freelancer for many years and there were a number of jobs I did where I did everything that was asked of me, whether it was any good or doesn't make, whether it was any good or not doesn't make a difference, he says. I did my best at what I was being told, and I wasn't paid. So, again, there's 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 a certain a certain again approach that all of these guys share. There's whether it's enthusiasm, whether it's um, matching personalities, whether it's giving people space. This is really important in regards to how these different editors work. And I'm telling you, the same is it is it is the same story uh, today. Um, and, and, and the final aspect that I want to share with you that I thought was the most interesting in all of this <clears throat> is getting back to plots and getting back to, uh, the way that comics are, are created. And here it is. Um, she says, uh, Louise Jones weighs in on the creative experience. She says, there are a couple of criteria you start off with, like who's available. You have people writing 
into books all the time saying, why didn't you put so-and-so talent on this book? Because they would have been perfect. And usually the answer is so-and-so talent is doing five of the books that they are interested in and are simply not available. Availability is a key for us. And then would they be good for it? And would you, and then you choose two or three of the people that are then available and try and get the best one for the job. And then they, um, Danny O'Neill says, one of the advantages of working in such a small world as comics is that everybody already knows what everyone else is doing or would like to do. Generally, if I'm about to start a new project, everybody knows about it within a week and people will come up to me and express their interest. If I happen to like their work, I know they'll be competent professionals and if they have enthusiasm and they want to do it, I'll do everything possible to accommodate them because given everything else being equal, enthusiasm will ultimately make the difference. If not, as Louise Jones has said, you take the best of what's best of the rest, basically the best of what's available. And Danny O'Neill goes on to Dick Giordano actually weighs in and says, I can put together a successful book right here in the next five minutes. If Roy Thomas or Danny O'Neill or Archie Goodwin were to write it and Neil Adams would agree to draw it, I have an instant success. I think everyone here across this panel would agree to it. I would have had, I, I, I would have to come up with a terrible concept for it not to be success with those talents on it. But we don't have that ability. Almost none of that happens. It's very rare when we are able to match our very best writers or our very best artists on a brand new project that has a great concept and do it all in the same book. It's a matter of playing chess and moving the pieces around and trying to get two or three pieces that have the most energy on the same project. Sometimes it means going outside of your regular staff of stars and it means working with people who have never drawn a line or written a line. And to that, people, I am going to tell you, that is why I was so fortunate when they absolutely took a took a flyer took a took a um you know took took a shot on somebody like Rob Liefeld so and and every new name Todd McFarlane was a brand new name Jim Lee was a brand new name Eric Larson was a brand new name my generation was you know full of and and before that Frank Miller was in his 20s when he took over writing and drawing Daredevil John Byrne was in his 20s when he was doing three books a month, Iron Fist, X-Men, Avengers. It was happening in September of 1977, no less. The dude was doing three books a month for Marvel. They were exceptional. He was hungry. He wanted to impress. I'm going to close with this, getting back to the plot, the plot. A question from the audience. Do you require your writers to submit a story synopsis before they go ahead and write the full story? Denny, uh, sorry, excuse me, Julia Schwartz, Superman editor, says, I like to involve myself in the creation of the story. It is no fun for me to listen to a writer come in with an idea, tell me the story, and then I say, great, go home and write it. Then the story comes in and I make a few few editorial corrections, spelling, grammar, and send it to the artist. That's no fun. There's no fun there. No excitement, no entertainment for me. But if a writer comes in and I like his story and we talk it over, and before you know it, the whole plot has been shifted around because the story turned out wrong, or at least according to my opinion, Sometimes the writer will come in and get stuck halfway through the story because we have our hero in a terrible situation and we can't get him out. We take a break for lunch and so on. He says, I once recall, this is again, Superman editor Julie Schwartz, spending as much as two weeks solving one little problem in a story I did with John Bruin, an artist named John Bruin, called Master Escape Artist of Space. We couldn't get the hero out of the trap until it finally occurred to us. It's like solving crossword puzzles. It almost burns you up to get halfway through it. And if you only get one more element down, you can get 
you can get the rest of these worlds, the rest of these words. Every story, in a sense, is a puzzle to be solved. It's the old hero meets villain, hero loses villain, hero catches villain. That's basically, that basically may be your story, but how about the characterization? How about the pitfalls? How about always being one step ahead of the reader? So I will sit down and talk and talk and talk and make changes back and forth. That's how I like to work. Now, I would not have liked to have worked with Julius Schwartz. Based on what I just read to you, he wants to insert himself into the process. He wants to be part of very much part of the creative process, so much so that he could apply himself. Louise Jones says, okay, I guess everybody knows pretty much what happens at Marvel. You get a plot. The plot is the story. The artwork is done from the plot. Then the dialogue is done once the art is complete. I will generally work any way that an artist-writer team is comfortable working. If it's a team where the writer does the plot by himself... He submits the plot or he just tells the story. If I think it's good, that's fine. If there are problems, we'll go and work it through it. <clears throat> then Julius Schwartz kind of, I think, inappropriately says, so she's a yes girl. I don't believe it. Louise Jones says, sometimes I say no. Julius Schwartz says, well, I hope so. Louise says, sometimes the artists and writers will go out to lunch and plot a story. That's a lot of fun. Most everybody prefers working that way. It's kind of up to which team I'm working with. What Dick and Denny, Dick Giordano and Denny O'Neill said about trying to create a climate where people tend to do the best possible work certainly applies here. That's that. Len Wein says, I think I work differently with different writers. I do require a plot. It depends on who I'm working with. If I'm working with somebody like Marv Wolfman or Jerry Conway, it's usually two sentences. I trust them to do what they're doing. They do it very well. Other people, newcomers, I tend to work over the plot, sometimes at various stages. I look at the entire plot and then send the writer back to do a page breakdown of the story, not panel by panel, just page breakdowns to see if the pacing is right. Sometimes there are four steps to the finished script. Sometimes it can take only five minutes. So let me gloss over again what Louise Simonson said here. Louise Jones. At the time, Louise Jones. <laughs> Where she says, sometimes they go out to lunch and plot the story. That's kind of fun. So here's the deal. In 1981, most everybody who was drawing comic books lived in Manhattan, lived in New York City. George Perez lived in New York City. He lived just outside the city during the Titans. Eventually, he would, uh, I think, move to, move to Queens or further away from the city, but he was on the East Coast. John Byrne was uh, in Canada. Frank Miller, Howard Chaikin, Neil Adams all worked in downtown Manhattan. Walt Simonson worked in the city. Barry Windsor Smith worked in the city. Bernie Wrightson worked in the city. If you get what I'm going at here, a lot of comic books was a buddy-buddy system. You get buddied with your butt. You get, you know, friendly. Jerry Conway, Marv Wolfman, Len Wein, these guys lived in New York. Chris Claremont lived upstate New York. He'd come in. He'd meet. The times that I visited Marvel when I just started there, Len, I mean, every time Chris was sitting on the couch in Bob Harris's office, the editor of the X-Men at the time. But see, FedEx changed everything. FedEx was just starting to boom in the early 80s. By the time I'm using FedEx in, in 1989, I was sending two packages a week. 
and then I've told you guys on this podcast how myself and Jim Lee are solely responsible for introducing Marvel to the fax machine. Because once we discovered that you could put a plot or sketches or layouts through a phone line and it came out on the other end in scrolled paper, we really had to work hard because it made our jobs easier. We even offered to buy it to, for them. The fax machine changed the information game, but we are still in the FedEx and the fact no one's got a scanner. We aren't scanning artwork till the mid-90s. We aren't scanning artwork and sending it to colorists until late, like 1996, 1997, okay? And, and, and because the, the file size and the internet and the bandwidth and, and just the entire, uh, you know, ability to transmit these via the internet did not exist at the time. It just wasn't possible. So you could send files... You know, you could mail a file away, but 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 only with the advent of high-speed internet were we able to start just scanning and sending, scanning and sending, Dropbox, Dropbox, okay? When Luis says the writer writes the plot and then the artist writes the story, remember, for guys like Rob Liefeld and for guys like Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane, we were the writer and the artist. Occasionally, we would ask someone to come in and dialogue. Put the script. What does Louis Simonson say here? The script is added after the art is in. Well, if you're generating the art, then you did it from the story. And if you generated the story, then you are the writer and the artist. And I will continue because you guys seem to be very curious. I get it all the time about the particulars. The advent of the scripter was was invented to make the job easier for the participating parties. They were to come in and take what was in the story and the elements that were put forth and then hang the word balloons. And yes, that is what they did. And so many of us were concentrating on doing... See, what Frank Miller didn't do is he did not ink Daredevil. Klaus Janssen inked Daredevil. I inked the New Mutants, X-Force. Eric Larson inked Spider-Man. Todd inked Spider-Man. Again, um, once you add a creative element... It takes away from another. Now, good for Todd. He was able to script on top. Good for Eric. He as well. Did you know that John Byrne ended up scripting over Jim Lee's plots in X-Men? Go back and look at those works. Claremont didn't like that he had been regulated to a scripter, and he left. That was his prerogative because Jim Lee took over the stories. Jim Lee didn't want to have the stories dictated him. He wanted to have more of an input and lay it out and envision it creatively so he became the guy doing the plots that was incredibly insulting from Chris Claremont's point of view you couldn't argue it from a successful point of view Jim was the right guy at the right place and in my opinion Chris needed to be challenged and part of that was Jim taking over the story because Chris didn't want to repeat some of the basically sequels to some revisit some of his greatest storylines because he felt he felt like he'd been there done that but we wanted more brotherhood of evil we wanted more hellfire club we wanted to go back to the savage land we wanted more conflicts with the, with magneto we wanted more imperial guard and the shiar and jim basically came again as i've told you and did sequels to all the great john Byrne stories but chris didn't want to do that and it had, had purposely avoided that for almost a decade but Jim made it so that it was inevitable that, that happened again and the fans responded in kind because that's what we had wanted on New Mutants and X-Force I created the story and the art what in terms of meeting those deadlines we enacted a script person and thank God the credits reflect that because again going back to the very beginning of this how am I going to tie all this together 
you heard Frank Miller say that it is very difficult to do the plot. It is a difficult thing to execute. People want to diminish people all the time, rewrite history. Avatar wasn't successful. Bullshit. Absolute bullshit. Avatar was a whirlwind that took over the world. Globally, domestically, everyone flocked to Avatar. They couldn't believe to be stimulated. Who gives a damn shit whether Brian Bendis thinks that he can write intelligent dialogue? Do you think that dented that movie one iota? It most certainly did not. I get excited about James Cameron. I'm not going to apologize for it. But we are beware. And that is to you, the blogger, and you, the podcaster, who are creating retcon history. Just because you wish some artist that you liked had been met with more respect or commercial opportunities. And you've created a narrative that that, that was a possibility. That is not true. That is you retconning. And maybe it all started with the last two election cycles back. And this, you know, mistruths and uh, alternate facts. But that's not true. That's why these magazines are so important. Twice in this, you have heard both Louise Jones, the editor of the X-Men, and Frank Miller, the author of Dark Knight and Ronin and Sin City and his epic Daredevil run, tell you how important plot is. Let that sink in. Let that sink in how important story is. Remember who's trying to con you. Who's trying to retcon you. Who's trying to convince you that James Cameron didn't contribute anything cinematically and that he only is successful because there was a 3D surcharge. I have read that more times than it makes me I, I, than I care to admit and it makes me sick. Beware the people who are pushing a false narrative. I read to you from magazines published in November 1981 called the Comics Journal. Issue number 68, if you'd like to look it up, maybe get a copy and flip through it. I generally read word for word exactly what each person is contributing. I thought all of this was very interesting to share with you to get you guys. This was before the time. Let me let me let me let me end by saying today's DC and Marvel Comics are event structured. When they get together and they meet, they talk about big events that they're moving towards. Many times now it's four to five different events that they're moving towards. A Spider-Man event, an Avengers family event, and an all-encompassing Marvel event, an X-Men event. And then the writers break off and go and do their, contribute to that based on one agreed upon vision that was agreed in a session, a jam session. I was never a part of the I have never been part of it. I don't intend to ever be part of it. Uh, I don't believe Frank Miller would have been part of it. Uh, we collectively left and formed Image Comics before that first big kind of plotting session where everyone would sit around and, and, and join together and create offshoots and interlocking chapters. Now, Jim Shooter himself is the godfather of that because Secret Wars was so successful. And I've covered Secret Wars 2 on a dedicated, both Secret Wars and Secret Wars 2. And those were huge events that absolutely changed how Jim Shooter interacted with his staff and his talent and his own position in the company. And that generated a huge and tremendous change in regards to how Marvel fundamentally worked. They inched towards that more and more and more. And then by the 2000s, remember... So much of the new and, you know, the, the creative, the creativity was gone. Where was the next Cable and Deadpool and Venom? 
okay? And Carnage, these ex incredibly exciting characters. We just got more. There was multiple Captain Marvels. There's multiple Captain Americas. There's multiple Spider-Mans. It, it is, I, I believe we are still possibly pivoting away from the age of the derivative that has really dominated the derivative, the Miles Morales, the, uh, you know, Spider-Gwen, Gwen Poole, uh, just multiple Captain Americas, you know, multiple Spider-Mans, multiple versions of the Avengers, numerous people wielding the hammer of Thor, multiple Hulks, Green Hulk, Red Hulk, Gray Hulk. I mean, the derivatives really took over Marvel Comics and uh, have dictated so much of their direction and their character creation and interaction. People also stopped wanting to introduce new characters because they didn't like the cut of the character that they would get, you know, based on the current publishing model that both DC and Marvel enact. I mentioned how exciting recent runs on Batman were due to the fact that James Tiny and James IV introduced Punchline and all these other new characters over his very exciting year with Jorge Jimenez. New characters can really stimulate. People have a... Uh, I think that there's only so much bandwidth for the derivatives and Marvel absolutely maxed that out in the 2000s, I think the last 20 years. They are on their way under, it's too early to, to I, I don't think CB has been there a full four years. CB Sobolski is currently the editor-in-chief. It's going to be interesting to see how this continues to build out and play out. Um, you know, it, it, it. most of these guys get a decade to contribute and, and you can then look past and look over the entire breadth of what they did in, in regards to shaping, but at this time in 1981, the way that editorial meetings were broke down again, it was talent doing books specifically. And again, what's that first question? Hey, what do we do when somebody else is using somebody else's character? And Jim addresses it and how, you know, maybe Chris comes out of an office. That character's being used in Iron Man. How about just saying, <clears throat> I used a Fantastic Four character in the X Men and it pissed off my former collaborator who's now running Fantastic Four? Very interesting. For years, they didn't touch Elektra. They had an agreement with Frank not to touch Elektra. Then in 1996, they launched Elektra without Frank and never looked back. So sometimes you can have that understanding that they'll they'll only, you know, deal with you on a certain level uh, for an extended period of time. But then eventually, always the company is going to do what the company wants. And you have to obviously step aside and just be happy that you participated. A lot of changes, a lot of similarities. Some things never change. Some things stay the same. I believe with everything that they said, enthusiasm and matching up the right teams is key in getting the very best possible comic books that we all know and love. And isn't that the goal at the end of the, at the, end of the day? To, to wrap up what I started at the beginning, I love comic books. I love that they are the uh, base material, that they are the, that they are the, you know, the garden with which all of this grows from. Comic books um, are the source for all that is followed. The toy, what's on the toy shelves in the video game aisles, on your streaming platforms in the theaters, and that is just a wonder to behold that these, the work of these amazing creative minds who who I don't believe still get the kind of accolades they should because so much of the creative community that you meet. I'd, I'd say 80% of them was inspired by a comic book at some point. Comic books are a very specific 
kind of skill set. You have to really be able to want to do it and be able to budget and know that that's what you're going to survive on or can you fit it in. A lot of guys, just so you know, still have insurance jobs, uh, uh, management jobs, executive jobs, and they do comics on the side. And that's something we'll get into and why that exists in another uh, another time. But comics is almost, I've, I've said it before, It's I've said it before on this podcast, it's a disease. And once you get it, there's no getting rid of it. And we'll cover more of this in the weeks to come, but I thought you would enjoy jumping back into 1981 San Diego Comic-Con, listening to creators talk about creations, listening to why Frank Miller was able to do what he did because no one was going to bother with Daredevil because Daredevil didn't matter. It, it just had become kind of set to the side. This is something that's very familiar to me. It, 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 it's, it's something that I recognize. Then this editorial summit between editors at DC and Marvel and listening. I mean, a guy like a Julius Schwartz, he basically wanted to help craft the story. That's how he felt the most comfortable. Somebody like a Louise Jones, she wants to get her team happy and have them uh, uh, you know, cr- create a story together. Maybe even if they went out to lunch. Well, no one was going out to lunch in 1989 when the creative teams were in Southern California. As I've said, the image guys, they called us they, uh, before, you know, Todd called us, the Elboys! Oh, the Elboys! Okay, well, they called us the West Coast, you know, West Coast Mafia, because so much of us were on the West Coast. Think about it. Jim Lee, Wills Portacio, Rob Liefeld, Eric Larson, Todd McFarlane, Mark Silvestri, Jim Valentino, Scott Williams, Art Tiber, all on the West Coast, all of us. We were no longer in Manhattan, in Queens, in Jersey. Something to chew on, something to think about until we talk it, we talk it over again. So you guys know that at the end of every episode, I read the amazing reviews that you guys leave for our show across all the different platforms. I don't know where you listen. I don't know if you're getting it from Spotify, from Apple, from iHeartRadio, from the website directly. I don't know where you are listening. There's so Podbean. There's there's all sorts of platforms that I'm, st- I'm continuing to learn and and discover that that carry podcasts. And you guys are so generous to give us your listens and your downloads. And and you guys read. You guys leave. These amazing reviews, and I try and read one at the end of each and every show. And today I'm going to read this amazing review by by a, a man named Spider Manko, but he signs it Jam. So two, I got two names here. Jam is what he ends with, but it's logged under Spider hyphen Manko. Okay, and he just left this recently. Gives us five stars. Thank you, Spider Manko slash Jam. It's very brief. It says so much fun. Five stars. This podcast is like having a friend who's interested in all the same pop culture stuff as you and you geek out together for an hour. Cool info, great insights, delivered with infectious <laughs> delivered with infectious passion. Rob, hats off to you for making a great show. Jam. Jam, you touched me deep, okay? I love that I was compared to a friend that comes over and we geek out on all the same pop culture stuff. That's what I'm here for today. I hope you enjoyed the time capsule, both the avatar kind of look back as well as this 1981 snap, snapshot of Marvel and DC editors. I, again, I hope I enrich you with the information that I share and that maybe you can, um, it, it, it gives you an enhanced uh, view of what you're enjoying or maybe challenges you to pick something else. So many of you guys, I'm so heartened. You guys have shared that you're buying American flag and looking over Howard Chaikin's um, comicography. And, and I, it just thrills me. You're going to be blown away. It's going to be an entire new portal of entertainment. And so thank you again. When you guys leave these reviews for me 
I read them at the end of each and every show. You guys, I am all over social media. I am on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. I am on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. Once again, I am on Instagram at Rob Liefeld, the, the regular name. On Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld. What they both have is a blue check that tells you it's really me, not a fake account. I saw just today, Josh Brolin was sharing that there was a fake Josh Brolin account that was asking for money. Again, that is the fear of everybody that they, you get a doppelganger. The blue check tells you that it's really us, that you're not dealing with a charlatan, that you are dealing with the real deal Holyfield. So again, Twitter at Robert Liefeld, Instagram at Rob Liefeld. I read your messages, your DMs, your mentions, um, all of the different um, comments that you leave. Thank you so much for interacting with me. I simply love talking and sharing our experience together. Uh, this show has a dedicated page on Facebook, Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld. Like it, give it a comment. I will find you. I will find that like. I will find your um, comment. I will give it um, the, the the interaction and, and, and find you back. I have a group on Facebook. I want you to be a part of it. It's called Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group, named after my Extreme Studios and kind of the, the notion that my work is extreme. Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. It is moderated by myself, the other administrator is a man named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A. Please join us. You will know that you are in the right Rob Liefeld group because it is moderated by myself or Terry Sala, and we will click you through, and you can join the thousands of other people who daily leave posts, share comments. We share um, not just the stuff that I created, but the stuff that I worked on, which which opens the door to Archie Comics characters, to G.I. Joe characters, to Avengers, Fantastic Four, so much of the great Stan and Jack stuff because I've worked on all of it. So come and join us at Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group on Facebook and we will make sure to click you through and, and, and we would love to have you in that group. You guys, I am part of an amazing app called What's Not. Sorry, What Not, just What Not, no, no S, What Not. What Not is an incredible, collecting, uh, incredible collectible app. Man, I can't even speak. It is an incredible collectible app. You get the app, you join, and you will be part of a million rooms selling uh, Funko Pops, toys, uh, cool kicks, sneakers, uh, sports cards, trading cards, collectible card games. I am in the toy and comic book category almost exclusively because that's kind of, you know, I have a lot of Deadpool, X-Force, Cable, Domino toys, Funko Pops. I sign them, I remark them, I put them up for auction. There's tons of auctions all the time. It is basically the 21st century... uh, it's catching fire eBay. It's it's a new way to do what eBay started, but whatnot has taken it to the next level. I am on there for the entirety of my feed. I am looking right at you. I am talking to you. I am sharing with you my drawings, my sketches, my comics, some of the deals. We have a brand new Brigade 30th anniversary uh, whatnot exclusive that launches this week. I hope you find me. I hope you find my show. Join me on whatnot. Get the app. You're going to want to shop beyond what you interact with me, but if I would so appreciate it if, if you would be part of my live streams. I generally do them on Wednesdays and Saturdays. We always get when we schedule the show. If you follow me, you'll get a notification. So get on whatnot and uh, wa- follow me and the comics and the sketch art and the remarks and the toys and the Funko Pops that, that I share with you guys. I would love to see you. People have said that it is like an extension of this very podcast. I'm a little less filtered. I'm a little unfiltered, more unfiltered, maybe not so great. Um, when you talk into a live stream and you are there on video for hours on end, you tend to lose your, um, filter. Ain't that the truth? So anyway, whatnot, check me out. I'm Rob Liefeld on whatnot. You guys, you know that at the end of every episode, I want to encourage you have fun. That's basically it. Just have fun. 
Get out, cut loose. Go out with your friends. Have a great dinner. Have a great meal. Go search out a great ice cream joint, gelato joint. Get two scoops. Get some caramel. Get some fudge. Get some nuts. Get Come on. Do it up. There's a time to have a bag of Doritos and get that extra chip that has the extra dust. You know how that feels. You know how much your senses go crazy when you go, oh my gosh, this chip has three times the dust that all the other chips does. And that nacho flavor is even better than ever. I believe in good junk food. I believe in comic books. I believe in streaming. I believe in movies. And these are the things that I think you should believe in too to have a good time. Kick back that recliner. Sunday nights, boom, that recliner's going back. I'm watching House of Dragon. I'm elated. I'm watching Andor, okay? I am being stimulated by these incredible streaming shows. Or I'll pop in Avatar on my 4K, like I said. Or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Or watch The Godfather with my kids. Or whatever. We need to get the escape, guys. And if this escape, maybe your escape is this podcast. And I thank you so much. But but treat yourself. That's the bottom line. Treat yourself. Have fun. Eat fun food. Tacos. Linguini, you know, pizza, hamburgers, barbecue burgers, fried chicken sandwiches. Let's go. You got to do it. You know you got to do it. My wish for you is that your spiritual, your mental, your emotional, and your physical self are fed. And you have to do that by stepping outside of the grind. Get outside of the grind and treat yourself. So hats off to you. I'm rooting for you. I hope you're doing well. And I hope that you swing around next time and find me because I'm going to be here. I'll be right here waiting for you. And we will most certainly, absolutely, inevitably talk again real soon.